Wondery Plus subscribers can listen to 10% Happier early and ad-free right now. Join Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. Hey, it's Dan. Uh, Before we uh, jump into this week's conversation, which is a really good and really important one, I just want to tell you about something new we're doing at the 10% Happier app. As part of our top secret corporate research, uh, by which I mean uh, talking to customers and ex-customers, it's become very clear to us what is probably blazingly obvious anyway, which is that the number one obstacle uh, to meditation for people is time. People just feel like they don't have the time, which I get. So we've got a whole new initiative we're doing around one-minute counts. That's our new slogan. I guess I should say mantra since it's a meditation context. Uh, One minute really does count, actually. And you may have heard a while ago we had a guest, Corey Mascara. He's a great meditation teacher. He was not only a guest, but he also came in and taught uh, another guest how to meditate on a separate episode. And Corey, in the course of our podcast, talked about He actually really agrees that one minute counts. And he actually said something that really got me thinking. He said that if you can get your butt in the chair to do one minute, at the end of that one minute, there's a key moment where you may decide, okay, I've been here for one minute. I'll do another minute. And that moment is a huge moment from the standpoint of of behavior change or habit formation. Because at that point, you're going from exogenous external expectations to really an internal decision of, oh, yeah. I'm here. I'm gonna. I'm gonna do more, and then you're on your own steam there, in a, in a in a in a in a really different sort of way. So what we've done on the app is we've created all these one minute meditations, but they're adjustable length. So as soon as you get to the end of the one minute, you can either finish or you can re up and do another one, maybe another one after that, and another one after that, and see where it takes you. So we've got a bunch of of these up there from people like Sharon Salzberg, Seventy Selassie, uh, Jay Michelson, a new teacher we're working with named Matthew Hepburn. Uh, so go check it out. That being said. Uh, I want to tee up our guest for this week who is truly uh, doing important work. And I think it's going to be a, a really thought-provoking listen for you. His name is Anurag Gupta. And uh, he not only has a, a lot of experience doing meditation, but he has thought quite deeply about uh, racism and bias in our culture, which is, uh, to state the obvious, a massive problem. And he's thought a lot about ways in which meditation can be useful on this front So without further ado, here he is. From ABC, this is the 10% Happier Podcast. I'm Dan Harris. Thank you very much for doing this. Really appreciate it. Thank you for having me. I'm really interested to hear about your work. I think it's of massive societal, economic, cultural, moral importance. But I want to start with just just getting to know you a little bit because we haven't met, although we do have a really good mutual friend, Seb Selassie, prior guest on this podcast. So how did you get into meditation? Well, I come from a family, a, a Hindu family, and my grandmother actually was the first person with whom I meditated. And then my mother introduced me to Kriya Yoga, which was a lot of pranayama and really learning about breath work. And then Kriya after, yoga. Is that one of the popular kinds of yoga taught these days? Yeah. I okay. mean, it was not, I mean, it's part of the yoga teacher training programs across the country and the world now, but it was really brought to the West in 1920 by Paramahansa Yogananda with the Self Realization Fellowship. Okay. So that I've heard of, but not familiar with. And you sent me a little note about your background. You mentioned this, but I, uh, the Self Realization Fellowship. Indeed. Indeed. So it was it was kind of a, a way to fuse um, yogic philosophies of India with the Christian yogic philosophies of Jesus. So my mother has been a student of that. So she introduced me to that in college when I formally started meditating. So about 15 years ago. 
And then after college, I moved to South Korea. I was on a Fulbright there, and I was assigned to teach English at a Buddhist school. So that was kind of my foray into full-on Zen practice, what they call Son Buddhism. So just to just so I've got my con- concepts correct here. So if you when you were meditating in the Hindu context, was it more of a mantra meditation? Actually, there are mantra meditations, but Kriya Yoga was very much around the breath. Okay. So it was really noting the breath, and very similar to the Pasana practice, actually, the ones that I was doing. Very similar to ba- sort of basic mindfulness, where you're yeah. aware of the breath coming in and going out, and when you get lost, you start again. Right. Now, you said that earlier when you first mentioned it, but I thought you were talking about being aware of the breath as you practice yoga, but you're actually talking about a meditation where you're just feeling the breath coming in and going out. And then also being able to control the breath. So a lot of pranayama practices, which is really around, you know, staggered breath, um, counting along the line. So really being able to see the state of the mind as you're breathing. Huh. And so then you got into, you were doing Buddhist meditation. Indeed. Did you say Korea? In South Korea. And then I, I was also, so I'll back up a little bit. I was always very interested in international development and human rights. And when I was in college, my first year of college, I read about Daong San Suu Kyi. So she is the now one of the leaders of Burma, the country would be called now Myanmar. And I was just so thrilled by her story and just moved by it that I wanted to work in Burma. So as an American at that time, I couldn't go to Burma because, we, because of the totalitarian regime there. So I figured out a way to go there after college which was why I went to Korea to start a nonprofit there in Burma, actually. And there I was also introduced to Buddhist practice um, in the insight tradition, in the Vipassana tradition, so Theravada Buddhism. So that's where it all began. So you were a kid at that, at that time? Uh, well, yeah, right after college. I was 21 at the time. How old are you now? You're still a kid. I'm, well, I'm 31. I'm well, very much an young. adult man. But to my, from my vantage point at 45, <laughs> you're, you're young. Take it as a compliment. Thank you. Um, uh, it does not mean I don't take you seriously. It just means I'm, I'm envious. Is really what it means. Um, so, so you've been then you've been kind of steeped in this stuff for a while. Mm-hmm. I mean, this is my life. I mean, there's nothing more that I love about living today than the Dharma and you know mindfulness practices and meditation. So, when you started by having exposure to both Burma and um, South Korea. What has that? How serious have you gotten about the practice? Did you, did you go live in a monastery? Did you, or did it just become a daily thirty-minute-a-day thing? What's what's uh, what's the dosage? Both, actually. So I did a month-long retreat. I became a monastic in the Chan tradition in Taiwan. Um, I literally just went on a program that was geared towards Western um, students of Buddhism and really began to experience mindfulness in solitude altogether with a lot of devotional practices that are common in the Chan tradition, but then also, of course, having a daily practice. I've done over almost two dozen retreats across insight centers in the U.S. You know, you mentioned some of them in the past, Spirit Rock, IMS. I sit on the board of BCBS, which is a sister organization of Insight Meditation Society. BCBS, Barry Center for Buddhist Studies. Indeed. indeed. Barry is spelled B-A-R-R-E. Um, it, it's an amazing. 
Barry, Massachusetts is where the Insight Meditation Society is, which was founded by Joseph Goldstein and Sharon Salzberg and Jack Kornfield, and it's where I do a lot of oh, retreats, wonderful. and you do retreats as well. And but it's kind of like a Buddhist Epcot center out there. I mean, it's like they they've got they've got. IMS, which is a retreat center. They also have a, a f- the Forest Refuge, which is a retreat center for advanced students, and then BCBS, the Barry Center for Buddhist Studies, which is a place where you can both practice meditation and also learn about Buddhism in, in its many different flavors. Uh, and I've never actually taken a course at BCBS, but they offer online courses, which I think are superb. Yes. Superb. Yes. And you ought to visit. I've Next visited. <laughs> I've visited, in, but I've never actually sat. sat okay. Yeah. So anyway, so yes, so you were you were listing off your your basic dharmic credentials there. Yeah, but basically, I mean, regardless of those, I mean, those opportunities really allowed me to become really intimate with my mind and really understand the nature of the mind and how I was filled with so much violence towards myself. Hmm. Um, which really has percolated into the work that I've done prior to coming to mindfulness, but also since. What do you mean by that, violence toward yourself? So, um, basically, I immigrated to the U.S. when I was 10. From? From India. Mm-hmm. So I grew up in, te- in Delhi, and there was three things that were happening simultaneously. One thing is that I've always been really, really passionate about Service, like giving back, and that's 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 def- that's definitely something that I receive from my family members. But also, I grew up in a very, very, I would say, emotionally unstable family. Um, everybody is together, but there's a lot of issues that aren't talked about. Mm. Issues like death and suicides, and um, just arranged marriages, and which comes out in interpersonal emotional violence. So experiencing that, I was already feeling like, oh, there's something wrong with me. And coming to the U.S., this was, you know, in the mid-90s, and then 9-11 happening, I became oftentimes the subject of attack, mostly verbal, um, you know, being called Osama bin Laden, just walking down the street or on the subway quite often, or just feeling like I've been othered and I'm almost not human mm-hmm. because of the way I looked. Mm-hmm. So that kind of perpetuated a whole sense of self-loathing, which for me um, was difficult on the one hand, but the way I escaped it was through achievement, doing really well at school, trying to prove myself as much as possible. Um, and I did. I achieved a lot you know, at a young age, as you said, I was addicted, like that was my addiction, is achievement, Mm. getting incredibly good grades, getting scholarships, you know, being admitted to some of the most prestigious universities in the country, you know, of four degrees (laughs) in different disciplines, including being a lawyer. But there was always a sense of not being enough. And it was my mindfulness practice that really allowed me to understand the nature of that. You you could have lived a a high-achieving but quite unhappy life. Without that. Agreed. I totally agree. Well, that's really interesting. So that fed into what you're doing now, Be More America. Mm -hmm. Uh, Tell me about the organization, and then I have a thousand questions from there. Sounds great. So Be More, um, or Be More America, actually it stands, it's an acronym, Be More itself, and it stands for Beyond Equality, B, movement of opportunities rising for everyone more. And this idea really was conceived 
through my mindfulness practice, as I was struggling with the amount of inequity that I saw in our world, but particularly in America after going to law school, but also the amount of inefficiencies that I saw in our systems. So as someone who like thinks in systems and you know was, was pursuing an academic career prior to going to law school, I was just like, wow, there's so much wasted costs and wasted human talent because of this thing that we have, that we call bias. And I also saw that in the world of, you know, inclusion and diversity, there's a lot of policing that goes mm-hmm. on of people. There's a lot of shame and guilt and woundedness that we see. That, and we're constantly trying to show other people that they're wrong, you know, and, um, or at least that's how I felt. It's not a generalization about the entire industry. And for someone who was experiencing a lot of that myself, once I began intimate with my own being, I was like, wait, no, like, I'm okay, right? So my, my mindfulness practice of the first five years was just meta for self. Um, we should define that. M-E-T-T-A is love, loving kindness. Uh, and often it's a practice that you send to other people. Um, but the first step generally is self-compassion, loving kindness for yourself. And a lot of people have a hard time with that. And it sounds like you properly diagnosed yourself as somebody who needed to dive deeply into that. Indeed. And thanks to the guidance of a lot of my teachers, including Sharon Salzberg, who saw that. They were like, wait, you need to start there. <laughs> There's something blocking you from seeing the bigger picture. And then um, on a retreat with where I was just, you know, it was after law school, I was working in at a big think tank. We were working on issues of criminal justice. And because it was a systems-oriented organization, I was able to see a lot of um, just massive disparities, whether it came to prison populations and who was being arrested, but also for how long people were going to prison and being like sitting in the courtroom and seeing, you know, judges sentence young African-American children, you know, 15, 16 years old to jail for like four or five years for possession of marijuana, where I was like, well, in law school, like a lot of my classmates would have that much all the time and they would be smoking, but nothing would be made out of that. So I just saw that this is unfair. Not that my colleagues from law school should be arrested and thrown into prison, but I'm just saying that what is behind um, some of these um, systemic um, ways of being and what's needed to shift that. And you really think it's implicit bias, that the judges aren't doing this because they hate young black people. It's because they are loaded up with a bunch of cultural assumptions that they're not even aware of because it's mindless. Precisely. Um, and of course, there's conscious bias out there as well, which is explicit bias. But the vast majority of bias that we see in our country today and the world is implicit, which is, again, like you said, implicit bias are ingrained habits of thought that lead to errors in the way we make decisions and the way we perceive and reason and remember things. And that's, again, it's a mindfulness practice because as human beings, first of all, we're animals. So we have a brain and we have a nervous system and we receive stimuli from our five senses and we make associations with all of that stimuli, visual stimuli being one of those things. So how are we, you know, making those associations when we see human beings of different colors, of different sizes, of different genders? And how is that impacting the decisions we're making? 
But isn't, isn't some of it adaptive? You know, we adapted to make judgments very quickly because it paid off. Like, oh, that's a saber-toothed tiger. I should run away. Absolutely. Right? So so isn't some of the sizing up we do quickly, aren't there benefits to doing to some of that? Absolutely. I mean, I think that we need to know the difference between a tiger and a puppy, you know? Yeah. A kitten and like a giraffe for sure. But what about with human beings? Like, I just get a bad vibe off that person. I don't, I don't know if I want to um, sign my company over to them or wh- whatever it is. Right. So a lot of that. So the vibe aspect is the whole aura of a person, yes. of a being, being with them, looking at their temperament, their facial expressions, their verbal, nonverbal, how they're communicating. But when it comes to implicit bias, and let's talk about implicit racial bias. So, for example, judges on average sentence black men 18 months longer than you know non-black defendants for the same exact crime, controlling for all other factors. Did you see the documentary 13th? Of course. I mean, incredibly yeah. powerful. Yeah. yeah. So what's going on there, right? So for me, as someone, again, who studied this stuff because I was like, I want to know the root of this. So I had a professor in law school um, uh, professor Derek Bell, who's passed away right sure, now. Sure, sure. Famous yes. Harvard Law School professor Derek Bell, yes. Exactly. He was a professor of you know, former President Barack Obama's, and he um, basically coined this thing called critical race theory. And he and I would disagree on one thing. You know, I adored him as an academic, but the one thing we disagreed upon was that racism is permanent. Because as someone who practices the Dharma and is mindfulness practitioner, I'm like, well, nothing is permanent. You know, everything is impermanent. And when you really go to the roots of racism, Race as a construct is very recent, right? And I, want, I don't want people to conflate race with ethnicity, with nationality, with citizenship, with religion, which is where a lot of anti-Semitism comes in, but race as in looking at someone's appearance and assuming their geographic background, you know, African or Asian or you know, Native American, and then making assumptions about that. So currently, in all of our systems, we ask people, what is your race? Well, you know, the Human Genome Project proved that there's no genetic or biological basis for race. It's been 17 years since they've coded the entire human DNA. And they've actually found that they're actually people from different quote-unquote racial backgrounds may be more genetically similar than people in the same quote-unquote mm-hmm. racial category. Well, how do you define the difference between race and ethnicity? It's a great question. So race, I define race as a human hierarchy that was constructed in the 17th century. Um, by a bunch of pseudoscientists who love to collect skulls and body parts of people from across the world, people like Linnaeus, Blumenbach, and then put them on you know, a hierarchy of competence and aesthetic. And that was very much based on their subjective um, beliefs. And, but basically, that idea just percolated across the world you know, through academics, through scholarship, also influencing our founding fathers. So the Nationality Act... The Citizenship Act of the U.S. in 1791 required that any free white person may be admitted to become a citizen. So this idea of whiteness and being European was invented. And that didn't change until 1965 with the Immigration Act. But it's invented, but it's based on it's based on some... I mean, I, I, obviously putting it in a hierarchy is deeply problematic. But I am of... Caucasian extraction, right? That's that's kind of inarguable, right? I mean, I may have different. Uh, who knows what what happened in my gene pool leading up to me? I have no idea. Um, but are, are, are you, your family comes from India, right? So that that is a fact. So how do how do we how do we untangle that from 
race and and where does ethnicity come in and all that. So mm-hmm. I apologize for my ignorance here, but I'm learning from you. No apologies necessary. And I think this was the best question you could have asked me today, because the myth of Caucasianness was just invented in the 1790s, based on a skull of a formerly enslaved woman from the region of the Caucasus, what is now the country of Georgia. So there is a scientist named Blumenbach, a German scientist, who had the largest skull collection of any person in the world. And the Russian Tsar at the time was a friend of his, sent him the skull. And because the skull was from this region of the Caucasus, he, gave, he anointed that skull the name Caucasoid to make it sound scientific. <laughs> and then simultaneously to that, he had four other skulls, Americanoid, Africanoid, Mongoloid, Malayanoid, and hence we have a racial hierarchy. But if you think about modern-day Europe, Europe in the 17th century, 18th century, it was an incredibly diverse group of people. There was a lot of infighting. There was not very much trust between them. And there was differences of religion, of ethnicity, of language, you name it. And also there have been invaders pouring through uh, from all over. All over, and there's so many mixtures and intermixtures between them. We have no idea what those mixtures are. But because this story has been created, and it's been adopted by influential people, right? Influential leaders of countries, of companies, of academia. The story is percolated and kind of seeped into the human consciousness. So the better question would not be race, it would be ethnicity. Exactly. And that would be a much longer list. It's a much longer list, and ethnicity really isn't contingent upon one's phenotype exclusively, though it could be, right? Phenotype. So phenotype is people's appearance, physical appearance, how they appear in the world their skin color, their facial features, their hair texture, you name it. But you can be uh, an Italian, you can be ethnically Italian and be very dark skin or somewhat dark skin or very light skin with light hair, but you're Italian. So ethnicity is really where you share a sense of history, a culture, oftentimes language, also spirituality with a group of people. And sometimes you also share physical attributes with with the people from that group, but not necessarily. So I would say African-Americans, for example, are an ethnicity because they have a very um, unique culture that they've developed because of the experience of enslavement and then Jim Crow. But African-American culture is very different from, you know, Kenyan culture or, you know, Nigerian culture. And they're lumped into the same race. Precisely. Even though ethnically African-Americans are actually predominantly mixed and you can actually be more European in terms of your genetic pool, but still be called African-American because of the one-drop rule. And that's where some of the trouble around this hierarchy is. And for me, as someone who wants to really unleash human potential, um, I think we have to overcome this, this separation that this fictional idea has created, and so much misery and suffering also. No question. How do we overcome it, and what role does mindfulness play? Um, So for me personally, as someone who kind of broke my own bias, you know, and really understood it for myself, I think... Broke your own bias, meaning towards yourself or like you don't tell yourself some big story when I walk in the room? You're not like, okay, this is a white guy who's wearing a a collar shirt, probably grew up privileged and is um, whatever, uh, whatever story you might spin. Both and. Both and, actually. Broke my own bias around how I thought of myself you know, and my potential is what I could do and what I couldn't do based on my appearance and my ethnic background. 
but also the things I was assuming about people be- before I even talked to them based purely on what they looked like. And um, I think for me it was the mindfulness practice that really helped do that. But it's, so I'll, I'll give you an anecdote. So I was sitting on a retreat with Sharon Salzberg. It was one of the week-long um, loving-kindness practice. Uh-huh. And towards the middle of the week, we started doing a forgiveness practice literally all day. So if you think about, you know, meditating for 16 hours and just doing forgiveness, after a while you just get like super, super sensitive. And I began thinking about all the times I had harmed other people, a lot of times white people, by the thoughts I was carrying and how I was using even the word white in a way to dehumanize them. And that's when I began to see the seeds of violence in my own being, towards myself, of course, because I'd been practicing for a while, but also towards other people. So then I began questioning, so what is the difference between me and them? If someone is calling me Osama bin Laden without knowing anything about my spiritual background, my um, ethnic background, they, they have those seeds and they're feeding those seeds, but I too am doing that, and I'm unable to see the humanity in the other person. And look, most of the teachers that have brought me the practice of mindfulness are white, (laughs) are what we call white today. So I think that was when I was like, wow, there's something, there's something here. There's something here. And then the more I practice, the more I see it percolating into reality. This show is brought to you by BetterHelp. I got to tell you, I feel so much better when I talk about my anxiety instead of keeping it bottled up. There's an expression that I first heard from the great researcher and also Zen practitioner Robert Waldinger, never worry alone. Our temptation many times is to keep it bottled up, but the data really show that the people who do the best in life, who live the longest and are the happiest, have strong relationships with people with whom they can talk about whatever's going on in their lives. And for me, therapy is part of that. If you're thinking of starting therapy, you might give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com happier today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot slash happier. As they say at Amica, empathy is our best policy. Whether you need auto, home, or life insurance, they're ready to help you protect the things that matter most to you. They're a mutual company, customer-owned, in service to you. Amica representatives are here when you need them, and you can take comfort knowing a real person will be there on the phone to take care of you because the greatest measure of their success is your satisfaction. Um, so for me, how do we do this? I mean, back to your question, there's two things. Mindfulness really allows us to be aware of what's going on, right? So the four foundations of mindfulness, for example, we talk about the body, you know, feeling tone, um, thoughts, emotions, and hindrances and all sorts of things. So it allows us to become aware of it. But for me, it's also coupling that awareness with understanding. So this is where the information gap is in our society. A lot of us aren't taught that race is a fiction when it comes to biology and genetics. A lot of us are not taught how it came about. A lot of us aren't taught its implications in the world. 
a lot of us aren't taught how these implicit unconscious beliefs percolate into decision making that not only prevent um, many people from getting jobs or being compensated fairly or equitably as other people, but also is super expensive for companies. Like, for example, racial disparities in healthcare on an annual basis cost the U.S. economy $310 billion. Why? Because what happens is there are assumptions that healthcare practitioners may be making about the patients, which makes them come back and back and repeat visits over and over right. again. I saw some statistics about African Americans are much less likely to get pain meds. Precisely. Precisely. That's, that is wild. We're actually working on a study around this, but that's from toddlers to senior citizens. Unbelievable. And this is not just white doctors. Like, I want to be very clear that a majority of African Americans have an implicit bias towards African Americans, 55% in fact. Well, this was, this was true. This comes out in 13th because you, you hear in this documentary that ran on Netflix, which I highly recommend, uh, is about the American criminal justice system and, and, and the sort of baked-in prejudice against African Americans and uh, there was, and I'm not sure I'm going to nail this correctly, but they talk about the way news covers the African American community. It convinces a lot of African Americans to be scared of other African Americans. Precisely. So, and it's like the myth of criminality, right? So they actually point to the source of this movie, The Birth of a Nation. Yes. And how that myth, that story has really percolated not just our country, but across the world as a result. So, and that's the association. So d- despite being egalitarian, despite having a wife and a partner and, a child- and children who may be black, my implicit associations immediately go to what I saw in the news, what I saw in that movie. And unless I'm able to hack that, unless I'm able to recognize and become aware of that and create space between entertainment and news media from real life, I'm going to be going to those uh, autopilots. And that if I am the head of a hospital, if I am the head of a tech company, that's going to go into my decision making. So, but how do you have, I mean, I've, I've been meditating for a little while, not like forever, but eight years, right? And I, I, I am increasingly aware and ashamed of my bias that's becoming, that I, when I see it operating. But I don't feel like I've hacked it. And I, I don't think most people are going to do the amount of meditation I do. So how do we? How do you use mindfulness to, to, uh, to some measurable effect on a society-wide basis? I think it's such a great question. And I think first of all, responding to you, I mean, you said that you're ashamed, right? Yes. First thing we have to do is really address that shame. You know, one of my favorite teachers in the world is Brene Brown, um, who you know is a scholar, is a shame scholar based at the University of Texas. And shame prevents us from behavior change because it already acknowledges that we're bad and we're always going to be bad. But it's to acknowledge the underlining feelings and emotions around it. And be like, oh, shame is here. So not dismissing it. It's like, oh, wow, why is it here? Oh, because I'm not living up to the promise of my values. I stand for equity. I stand for justice. I stand for being free and loving towards all people. But my thoughts aren't. But then also giving yourself a break that, oh, wait, I'm an animal, and my brain is a product of the environment and the culture I'm you know, living in and have lived in all my life. So it's just repeating to me what I saw. Those were the inputs. So can I cut myself a slack, some slack and create some space there? And now then it's time to rewire, and that's where mindfulness comes in. 
So our goal, and you're right, no one can just practice mindfulness the way you, know, you and I do, for example, and we do it because it, there's a host of personal benefits that we get out of it. But for us um, at Be More, it's not just mindfulness practices, which we institute and we hope can become a part of you know, company cultures, whether it's in hospitals or um, banks or you know, tech firms or even police academies but also understanding the nature of bias and how it operates in the brain, understanding the origins of these stories and the assumptions, and pinpointing to them. So that becomes a part of our um, becoming professionals, becoming doctors, becoming police officers, becoming nurses, becoming investment bankers. So those decisions aren't... um, those beliefs aren't percolating into our decisions. So you're training corporations and institutions on how to combat implicit bias. And I, I wouldn't even use the adversarial language. It's to how to transform and hack it. Right, right. Mm-hmm. I, I knew as soon as I said combat that you were going to – somehow I just <laughs> – uh, somehow I knew that was going to be a problem. So uh, walk me through the moment then. So I, you're hiring – you, Anu, are hiring, and um, uh, I walk in the door, and uh, you take a look at me, uh, and maybe the pre-meditation you would have spun a whole bunch of yarns based on how I present in the world, what I'm wearing, what my skin color is, um, how my hair is combed or not combed or whatever. Um, how has that changed now, and how can it change for the rest of us? That literally the moment of looking at somebody and you do, how does it go for you now? You see the stories arise and you just see them for what they are or the stories don't come up? It's so interesting. I think it depends on the context. It depends on how long I've sat in the morning that day. Uh, it depends on if I've eaten or not. But what happens is, for the most part, for me, when I'm meeting someone new, I'm like, oh, someone new. Oh, person and some I mean of course I use labels man woman looks African-American looks Latino but any of those associations that might accompany it they're not there so African-American becomes really loaded in our culture you know black in general but those associations have been able to really decouple them so I walk in the door you say looks white but you're not thinking definitely shops at Whole Foods or definitely listens to NPR Whatever. You, or even if, if you do think it, you're able to see it and not be yanked around by it. Well, when you walked in, it was like, oh, my God, Dan Harris. Ah. <laughs> <laughs> but, yes, someone who may look like you or, you know, share your ethnic background, that's what I would say. Think, yeah. And, and, and uh, so what about for me then? Because I, I think, as I said at the beginning, that I do think this is a tower, uh, an issue of towering importance on so many levels, economic, uh, moral, uh, cultural, societal. Um, um, but I, I do, and I take it really seriously, and yet I, I do, I'm aware that I'm probably unaware of so many of these stories that uh, per, um, percolate up when I see another human being and that I act on unconsciously. So, And I'm a meditator, so what, what would you recommend? I, how can I address this? I think, first of all, the coolest thing now, which I, which, which we didn't have as human beings before maybe like 25 years ago, is that we can measure implicit bias, right? There's something called the Implicit Association Test. It was invented by a few social psychologists up at Harvard, and they've created this thing that w- it's literally a two-minute matching game where you're, so, you're basically, it's a dual categorization task 
where they're flashing images and positive and negative words at you. So it's images of black people and white people and positive words and negative words. Mm -hmm. And you just have to match them as quickly as possible. And what's happened is that sometimes, not sometimes, most of the times when white faces are in the same category as positive words, people are faster to make those associations. I, I, be I bet this would be a humbling thing for me and many other people to go through. I would highly encourage everybody to go online to take the test. With that said, once you learn your results, don't assume that this means you're racist or, or sexist if you, if you take the gender test or homophobic if you take the sexual orientation test. Because what it's telling you is that these are the deeply seated unconscious associations you have. Again, it's an implicit association test. So the idea is, you know, as Peter Drucker famously said, once you can measure something, you can manage it. Mm. So now we have a way to manage this. And, you know, last summer we had an intern from Singapore. This uh, is at BMORE. You had it. Yeah, yeah, at BMORE, my company. And she um, was raised in Singapore, born and raised there. She's of ethnic background, I mean, Chinese ethnic background. So we made her take the IAT. She's completely neutral. I was like, impossible. I have yet to meet anybody who's neutral. And there are 3 to 5% of people that could do that on this test. Um, we made her take it three more times, neutral every time. Because for her, it was just a matching game. Oh, positive words in positive bucket, negative words in negative bucket, black faces in black bucket, white faces in white bucket. She was just matching things. But her mind wasn't getting confused by, and this is where the second mind, the second foundation of mindfulness really comes in. This is known as Vedana. Right, so we should unpack this for a second. So foundation of mindfulness, the, when we talk about the four foundations of mindfulness, now we're getting actually real Buddhist, an old school <laughs> Theravadan Buddhist. So the, the Buddha talked about, the Buddha himself, or at least allegedly talked about what are known as the four foundations of mindfulness. The first is the body. Uh, so you basically, mindfulness of your body is a great way to get grounded in being aware of what's happening right now. The second, we don't, we're not going to go through all four right now, but the second is what's known as Vedana, that's the Pali term. Pali is the ancient Indian language in which the Buddha apparently spoke. Um, and um, Vedana means feeling tone. So everything that arises in your experience has one of three tastes. Pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral. Uh, so now that I've said that, carry on. That's it. That's pr pretty much it. So oftentimes what's happening is because since the this construct of race was constructed... And accompanying the concept, the way it was constructed was that there were stories attached to all these categories. So even like a lot of the stories we hear in our society, with even with anti-Semitism, for example, there are stories attached to being Jewish. And these are the what we call stereotypes. Now, this is the unpleasant experience of. And that is what's causing the distance, disconnect, separation between two seemingly identical human beings when it comes to genetics and biology and their nervous system altogether. And for me, it's like, wow, can we tap into that? Can we transform that? And now that we can measure it, and we have all these incredible mindfulness tools, we can manage it. And there have been studies done showing that if you mindfulness reduces implicit bias. You know, from University of Wisconsin, we have a bunch of other studies coming up, so it actually it can, it can, it can help you manage bias. And for me, it's, you know, it's not just for the personal performance reason, it's also for you know, unleashing true human potential, because what's happening is any industry we look at, whether it's healthcare, whether it's um, law enforcement, whether it's law firms, whether it's finance, there's a massive issue of pipeline, massive issue of talent. So we're living in a country that's 40% non-white. 
But in all of these companies, the numbers of people from those non-white communities is like under 20, 15 percent. What's going on? So there's just wasted talent. So we have so many challenges in our world, from climate change to poverty to hunger, you name it. But we're not able to use the vast majority of resources that are stuck in human bodies, which is their brain and their passion, because of this thing called bias. And it's actually bad for companies themselves. I remember I had a, my mentor in law school was a very, you know, burly, tall, Midwestern white guy. You know, from all forms, he was like the prototype of what would be considered a leader. And he was really into Chinese law, fluent in Chinese. All he wanted to do was like sit in the back and be a think tank policy guru on Chinese policy. But he told me that every time he was in, you know, any sort of a professional meeting, people would look at him and ask him for advice. <laughs> they would assume that he would know the answer because they assumed that he was a leader. Except for him, no, he wanted to sit in the back. And he's like, I hate group meetings for this reason. And, you know, this is the reason why, I mean, and we have so many studies showing that highest rates of suicide among white men in our country. You, huh? why, do you, why do you tie that? I think What's it's the stress. There? It's the cortisol levels because from the, the ex expectations, expectations of performance yeah. and being a certain way. There's mm -hmm. a perfection to being male and being of a certain ethnic background who looks a certain way. You, in order to really live up to your humanity, you have to fit that prototype. It's interesting you frame it that way because I always think about, like, uh, one of the things I've been thinking about in recent years is, like, as a white male in the society... I think if it's not about the expectations that are loaded on me, it, no, I'm not on, on any with a. I know you didn't use this term, but I don't have a victim mentality about it. I have a more of a, for sure, a mentality of guilt around. Uh, you know how how can you be a good white person? You know how can you be part of the solution instead of part of the problem? Given that there have been a lot of white people over males over uh, our history uh, who've done some pretty pernicious things. But you, the way you frame it right there is that actually um, there's a certain – there's a no shortage of suffering among white males because we're because we're turning the bias on ourselves. Precisely, because there's an expectation. I mean, the opioid addiction that's pretty much spread across our communities, pervasive, anxiety, feeling mm. helpless. Like, what is that about? And we've put so much pressure on ourselves to perform to a certain level. With that said, guilt is useful. Because guilt means I've done something wrong, so I'm going to be better. Right, it's the first step toward change. Precisely. Right. But with that said, this this issue of you know systemic inequity and inefficiency isn't just individual; it's systemic. So a lot of times, it's because of the policies and the practices and the processes that are in place that are creating this problem. So it's like that. I love this. Um, it was in this um, metaphor of you know there's a village right by a river. And there are tons of, like, babies that are drowning in this river. So the villagers are really concerned, so they start taking the babies out, one after another, one after another, one after another. And they're taking the babies out, but the flood of babies continue to happen. It's like, oh, we can't save all of them. We're just going to do the best we can, and we'll just take as many of them out. And I feel like that's a metaphor for our society, whether it's through the charter school system or, you know, 
uh, prison reform. We're just taking babies out, but there's so many other babies dying. What's causing this in the first place? Let's go to the root cause. And that's where, you know, this bias that has been instituted within policies, that's where we have to go. We have to transform those policies. And for me and for my company, Be More, it's really about reaching leaders at, instu- at the institutional level. So probation officers, pretrial services officers, prosecutors, public defenders. Teachers. No, teachers, doctors, nurses. You should add newsmen on there. Yes, anchors, actors, casting directors. Yeah. And if you think about our media entertainment, you know, that really is the window to the world of how we see ourselves and imagine ourselves and how we see others. And it's not just that there's a lack of diversity within our movies and our TV shows. It's also the representations yes. of the humanity yes. of yes. non-white people. Yes. I'm like, I'm not Apu. I was never Apu. I will never be Apu. And there's nothing wrong with Apu because there's tons of Apus who are Indian and who look like that and do that. But there's, you know, 1.3 billion Indians. You're in talking the world. about Apu from The Simpsons. From The yeah. Simpsons, yeah. right? But that's what people that I haven't been exposed to our culture, who haven't been exposed to people who look like me, will assume of me. So, so I, I know you have a company. You don't want to give away all your trade secrets. You you offering tra- you offer training to uh, all sorts of uh, folks in a professional context. But give us some hacks about how we can, people listening to this, who can, we can start to explore um, our own uh, bias and do something about it. Absolutely. I think the first thing we have to do is know where we stand. So that's like impl- taking the implicit association test there and then. And that you can just get this on the Internet. Yeah, get okay. this on Google IAT, IAT, or Project Implicit, and there's a bunch of different tests that one can take. Um, the second hack is really thinking about um, what are some of one's belief systems about people, right? And what is the res- when I say the when I say that, there is no gene for race. What is the resistance there? What is the resistance there? What in your experience prevents you from believing me and believing the science? And third is really listing and being honest with oneself. What were the stories we heard about people who weren't like us when we were children? From people we love, and we still love them, and we will continue to love them, from our parents, our pastors, our rabbis, but what did they say? And how did that influence us? And that's really important because those were the seeds that were planted at such a young age that began to create that distance. So that's th- that's all sort of assessing what our baseline is. Precisely. But it seems to me that you could do, like I was just thinking as I was listening to you talk, that, that you might just do a mindfulness practice of walking around and everybody who walks by you see what stories you tell yourself based on how they present. Exactly. You're walking on a plane, you see a stewardess, she's African-American. What story do you tell yourself? Right. Oh, sorry, I should say flight attendant. Yeah. Um, basically, what we call it is PRISM. PRISM are like these five strategies that have been proven by scientists in mitigating bias. It stands for perspective-taking, pro-social behaviors, individuation, stereotype replacement, and mindfulness. And they're all actually mindfulness-based practices, even though it's not all seated meditation, So I'll give you an example of stereotype replacement. So what happens when it comes to stereotypes, right? Like you said, there's an African-American flight attendant who's walking towards us, you know, male or female. There's certain stories that have been created. The second that arises, you're like, oh, wow. I know nothing about this person, but stereotype. But then you label it stereotype. And then you replace it with a counter-stereotypic example there and then of a friend or a public figure who you really admire who happens to be of the same ethnic background as that person. 
you know, whether it's, you know, Dr. King, someone who's deceased, because what's happening in that moment is that you're not um, strengthening the neural pathways of the stereotype, but you're actually interrupting it. And for us, it's actually helping people do that on a daily basis and making that a practice. So that that yeah. is a practice, right? Yeah. So it's a great mindfulness practice. You, if somebody walks towards you, you're about, you're, you see the story you're telling yourself, and A, you see it, B, replace it with something more positive. Right. And Unless that first story is positive. Precisely. And labeling it as such, just as we do in the mindfulness practice. That's pretty cool. Yeah, and then, you know, the, I found what we've been working on is that it takes as little as eight weeks of regular practice of these strategies to hack bias individually, not institutionally, but individually. To hack bias. So you're, you're fine when you go into an organization and teach them, you see change. Yeah, of course. I mean, I mean, it's funny because we, it was, there was an attorney in one of our trainings, pretty senior attorney um, who works for the government. And she was like, you should take this to Congress. You should take this to, you know, and we're like, yeah, we will. But, you know, when our time comes, but the idea is a lot of this information for me is, as, as someone who's a, who's a researcher, is like basic, but they never learned it. They were supposed to be taught this stuff in high school, but they actually were taught something else, that there is a hierarchy and there's five types of human beings. And it was those types of decisions that went into our Supreme Court cases. So there's a famous Supreme Court decision, Loving v. Virginia, which I think there was, was a movie about it recently. Right, Loving, yes. Right, Great Loving. movie. Great movie. And so it overturned the law in many states that opposed interracial marriage. And Judge Basil, who was in the lower courts, and if people saw the movie, they'll know, he wrote in the decision that God Almighty created human beings, you know, white, black, Malay, yellow, and red, and but for the interference with this arrangement, there would be no cause for such marriages. This is a judge mm. <laughs> in the head. I mean, respectable person, loves his family, his belief in this fictional story that was created 200 years ago by a guy who collected skulls from across the world, percolated into policy, human suffering of no measure. Mm-hmm. Where, if people want to learn more about you and your organization, how do they do so? So just log on to bemoreamerica.org. So it's bemore, B-E-M-O-R-E, America, A-M-E-R-I-C-A, dot org. And also we can, they can find us on social media, on LinkedIn and Facebook and Instagram. Further reading you would recommend we do if we're interested in this? Absolutely. There's three books that come to mind. Um, first is Blindspot by Anthony Greenwald and Mazarin Banaji. So these are the preeminent scholars of unconscious bias and have done a lot of the research that we now apply um, in our trainings. The second is um, History of White People. So it's done by the former head of the American Historical Society, Nell Irving Painter, Princeton professor, which really traces how this mythology of Caucasianness, which Dan, you actually also um, seem to believe, yes, right? Yeah. Um, I, was, came about. I, was, I was actually more likely just lazy language on my part, but anyway, yes. Yes, yes, exactly, but it's not your fault. So no shame about it. It's because you weren't informed about it. So History of White People. And the third book that comes to mind is um, um, Whistling Vivaldi. It's by Claude Steele, also a social psychologist, and he talks about how stereotype threat and all these other psychological phenomena take place. But it sounds like there's no great book on using mindfulness to combat to work with implicit bias. Not yet. Right, not yet. That's the book to be written. Anu, thank you very much. Thank you for Great having guest. me. Great guest. I mean, you're, I, I think people are going to get a lot out of this, so thank you very I much. I hope so. Thank you.
Okay, that does it for another edition of the 10% Happier Podcast. If you liked it, please take a minute to subscribe, rate us. Also, if you want to suggest topics you think we should cover or guests that we should bring in, hit me up on Twitter, at Dan B. Harris. Importantly, I want to thank uh, the people who produce this podcast, Lauren Efron, Josh Cohan, and the rest of the folks here at ABC who helped make this thing possible. We have tons of other podcasts. You can check them out at abcnewspodcasts.com. I'll talk to you next Wednesday. If you like 10% Happier, and I hope you do, uh, you can listen early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. Prime members can listen ad-free on Amazon Music. Before you go, tell us about yourself by filling out a short survey at wondery.com slash survey. I'm Shimon Liai, and I have a new podcast called The Competition. Every year, 50 high school senior girls compete in a massive scholarship competition. I wouldn't say I have an ego problem, but I'm extremely competitive. All of the competitors are used to being the best and the brightest, and they're all vying for a huge cash prize. This will probably be the most intense thing you've ever gone through in your life. I remember that feeling because I was one of them. I lost, but now I'm coming back as a judge and also a kind of teen girl anthropologist. Because if you want to understand what it's like to be a young woman in America today, the competition's not a bad place to start. Hopefully no one will die on station night. From Pineapple Street Studios and Wondery, this is The Competition. Follow The Competition on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to The Competition early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery+. For more than two centuries, the White House has been the stage for some of the most dramatic scenes in American history. Inspired by the hit podcast American History Tellers, Wondery and William Morrow present the new book, The Hidden History of the White House. Each chapter will bring you inside the fierce power struggles, the world-altering decisions, and shocking scandals that have shaped our nation. You'll be there when the very foundations of the White House are laid in 1792, and you'll watch as the British burn it down in 1814. Then you'll hear the intimate conversations between FDR and Winston Churchill as they make plans to defeat Nazi forces in 1941. And you'll be in the Situation Room when President Barack Obama approves the raid to bring down the most infamous terrorist in American history. Pre-order The Hidden History of the White House now in hardcover or digital editions wherever you get your books.